Hi, I'm Matthew Lindsay. I'm a ministry partner here at Westlake. Today's scripture reading is from Romans 14. Listen now as I read God's word, beginning in verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. For they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For some of us, lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that we might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we with all stand before God, judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Matthew, thank you for that reading. Uh, well, it was in 1948 when Leonardo da Vinci painted what has become one of the most famous paintings in all of Western art. It is known as the Last Supper. The Last Supper shows Jesus gathered with his disciples for the final meal, his final meal the night before he was crucified. Now, when this painting first came out, the critics were divided. Some of them praised da Vinci for his composition and his style, while others criticized him, thinking that he had taken too much liberty with the story. But what everyone agreed upon, what everyone commented on, was the intensity of emotion on the disciples' faces. Take a closer look at the painting with me. You'll notice that the disciples are gathered in four groups of three, and they are divided. They're in turmoil with six of them each on either side of Jesus. They are troubled. They are in conflict. They are not at rest. And da Vinci seems to capture this moment. Now, when I've reflected on this painting, I've thought about da Vinci is onto something here. You see, when Jesus began his ministry, he did so by gathering a group of followers who could not have been more different. They came from different backgrounds, different regions, different theological views, different political views. You had small business owners, fishermen, a government worker, tax collector. You had a zealot who wanted to kill government workers and overthrow the government. I mean, you could not imagine a more diverse group of people. And I got to thinking, 
what would it have been like to be a part of the discussion at this dinner table? And you thought you had it bad at Thanksgiving at your in-law's house. What was Jesus doing by calling together such a diverse group of people? Well, you see, I think Jesus seemed to think that his movement, his movement was really only going to change the world if it was not based on a simple kind of sameness, but rather a kind of oneness in the midst of diversity, a kind of unity in the midst of diversity with Jesus at the center. You know, it's kind of interesting at the actual Last Supper that we see in the Gospels, Jesus has a prayer request. Do you all know what prayer requests are? You've seen these before. You've been in a small group. Somebody at the end will raise a hand and say, hey, I've got a prayer request. I need you all to pray for this. Jesus actually had a prayer request at this Last Supper. And here was his prayer request. You ready? In John 17, Jesus makes this way. He says, Holy Father, this is my prayer request. Holy Father, would you protect them by the power of your name? the same name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Jesus' prayer request was for a kind of oneness amongst his followers, a kind of unity amongst his disciples. Now, why would Jesus make this prayer request the night before his crucifixion? Well, he tells us just a few verses later. He says this. Here's why I'm making this request. So that they... This, excuse me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then, then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You see, Jesus prayed for a kind of oneness, a kind of unity in the midst of diversity. Why? So that the world might know that God had sent him. That's why Jesus prayed for oneness. It's continuing on a theme that he has been building throughout his teaching here on earth. Like this from earlier in John when he said, here's how they'll know you're my disciples. They'll know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. Now, I don't know about you, but has anyone else noticed how divided our world is these days? I can hardly turn on the news, go to the grocery store, or have a conversation with a neighbor without this divisiveness just kind of creeping into the conversation. Every issue, it seems this, these days, has become a kind of us-against-them kind of thing. If you like a different brand of peanut butter than I do, we might no longer be able to be friends. Did you know that? Now, of course, I'm joking, but if you do mix your peanut butter with chocolate, I will, I'm just warning you, I will unfriend you on Facebook. See, the truth is, in our divisive world today, there are a lot, there are a lot of factors at, at play, a lot of things that are contributing to it, and I'm not here today to talk about that. I think, quite honestly, that's above my pay grade, but rather... As your pastor, I want to talk about this issue because I have a deep, deep concern for how I see it affecting us as a church. The stress that we are experiencing because of this divisive culture is really beginning to tear at our friendships, at our families, at our small groups, and even at our marriages. I actually talked with a guy just this week. Well, he and his wife were kind of on opposite ends of the political divide, and it has become a struggle for them in their marriage. A friend got them some socks where, you know, they got one donkey and one elephant on, on each sock, and, and even that isn't quite enough to get us there. 
But the truth is, the truth is, this divisiveness is eroding at all of our relationships. And so many of us are choosing just to step back, to distance ourselves. But is this really the best option? Indeed, is this our only option as Christians? Well, today I want to ask this question of us. And I'm really speaking to the Christians today. We always have skeptics and spiritual explorers among us. Today, you're kind of off the hook because the passage we're going to look at today speaks directly to Christians. But I know that the world around us is wondering, how do Christians navigate this kind of divisive culture? So the question I want to ask today for Christians is, how are we to treat others? Specifically, how are we to treat other Christians with whom we disagree? Well, apparently the Apostle Paul, uh, who wrote much of the New Testament, saw this issue coming. I don't mean that he saw the pandemic coming or the election cycle or the general mayhem of 2020. Nobody saw that coming. (laughs) Rather, what the Apostle Paul saw coming was the potential for division amongst Christians. And he actually writes about this in his letter to the church in Rome. We have it in the Bible. It's called the Book of Romans. Now, the last four chapters of this book are quite remarkable. It is what scholars refer to as Paul's Christian ethic. Paul is going to take the final four chapters of this great letter to try and work out for us, show us what it actually looks like to fulfill Jesus' command to love one another as he has loved us. Paul takes four chapters to unpack this, and this week and next week, we're going to be looking at these chapters Chapter 12, which begins this Christian ethic, begins by telling us that love must be serving. That is its nature. Love always serves. This is why we're given spiritual gifts, so that we might serve one another. But secondly, chapter 12 tells us that love must be genuine. It cannot be phony or put on. It has to be real. Then in chapter 13, we learn that love must be submissive, especially to the authorities, to the state, and to the powers that be, because God has put them there. We're going to talk about that more next week. And then in the latter part of chapter 13, Paul tells us that love must be universal. We all owe a debt of love to everyone because of Jesus. Now, today I want to look at chapter 14 because when we come to chapter 14, we learn something really, really interesting about this love command from Jesus. In chapter 14, Paul tells us that love must be patient and tolerant of other people's views especially views that are different than ours. It begins with our actions towards someone whom we regard as less enlightened, maybe less informed, maybe not quite as smart or intelligent as ourselves. Think about who that might be in your life and then listen to what the Apostle Paul has to say about it. This is again from Romans chapter 14, verse 1. Let me read these first few verses to you. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows him to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them both. Now, what's actually going on here? Is Paul just hating on vegetarians? Yes, he loves bacon cheeseburger. No, I'm just kidding. 
What's he doing here? Is he calling, he's calling them weak. What's he talking about? Well, there's actually something quite significant going on here in the background that we might miss. You see, for the early church, there was no issue more divisive than the issue of food. And there were two parts to this problem. The first part had to do with Jewish dietary laws. And some of you might be familiar with this. The law of Moses in the Old Testament laid out a whole list of foods that his people could not eat. Things like pork or shellfish or food sacrificed to idols. Doing so made you unclean and you had to go through a set of rituals to be made clean again so you could go to church. And so in the early church, you had these Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians who had totally different diets, totally different food habits. And the Jewish Christians, get this, would not sit at the same table as the Gentile Christians. They were afraid it would make them unclean. This would kind of be like me refusing to come over to your house to watch the football game because you're wearing a Cowboys jersey or a Seattle's Seahawk jersey. Those things are an abomination to the Lord, simply sacrilegious. But this wasn't the only issue. There was also the problem of where the meat actually came from. Where certain meats came from made matters worse. In Rome, get this, most of the meat markets were set up right next door to a temple. A Greek or Roman temple of some kind. This way, when you were taking your cow to the market, as one does, you could sacrifice your cow, do a little thing at the temple, get some religious credit, then take your meat next door to the butcher shop and sell it there so that others could come and buy it. Well, you can imagine what chaos this stirred up for many Christians. Can we really eat meat that's been sacrificed to Jupiter? I mean, I know Jesus declared all foods clean in Mark's gospel, but this seems a little extreme. Can we really do this? And y'all, this was a real issue for the first century Christians. They did not know what to do. Now, we can think of this, it feels a little bit strange. Food, dietary rules, like how, how do we make sense of all this? Well, to give you a feel, I wanted to share a story from my own life. I remember when I was in high school, uh, I was a part of a youth group, and I joined this high school boys Bible study. I was a sophomore, and the leader, Jeff, who was a senior in high school, invited me in. And I just loved these guys. It was so great. We were reading the Bible together. And we would go to this local donut shop right down the street from the church that had these ginormous bear claws. I mean, like bear claws the size of pizzas. So I would order about three of them because I was a high schooler, right? And we would just pig out on these donuts and we would study the Bible. And it was awesome. But one day, one day, one of the guys in our group noticed in the back corner of the donut shop a tiny little altar with a Buddha statue and a plate, and a donut on it. And so this conversation commenced in our group. What, what are we to do about that? Can we actually eat bear claws that have been dedicated to Buddha? I mean, we're studying the Bible here. Partly we're, we're supporting a local business. This is part of our witness even to these shop owners. But what are we to do with this dilemma? You could see how this would be a real question, can't you? Well, let's get back to our text. What does Paul say we should do about this kind of situation? Well, in chapter 14, he actually gives us three things, three commands that tell us how we are to respond in a setting where we disagree. Because here was the problem. I was just fine eating the bear claws. I thought, this is great. What better opportunity for these folks to see what Christians are like? 
But Jeff, the leader, felt uncomfortable about the donut on the plate for Buddha. And he could not, in good conscience, continue doing the study there. What were Jeff and I to do? Well, the first thing Paul tells us here in chapter 14 is that we are to accept those who are weak in the faith. Accept those who are weak in the faith. What does he mean by this? Well, what's really remarkable about this passage is Paul is not lacking for an opinion on this matter. Paul has a clear point of view. It's not that he thinks this is no big deal, that we should just breeze over it. He actually says that the person who is troubled by this whole food thing is weaker in their faith. He doesn't mean that they don't have enough faith. He simply means that they have not yet matured enough to the place in their faith where they understand the full scope of Christian liberty and freedom. It's as if he's saying they don't fully understand that they are saved by grace and grace alone. They think that somehow the food they eat has some kind of effect on their salvation. And so Paul says, that's okay, that's okay. Don't get too worked about it. We need to help this weaker brother or sister. We need to accept them. Why? Well, because God has accepted them. He actually calls this issue a disputable matter. I love this. My wife and I were talking about this in her Bible translation. It actually uses the word opinion. This is an opinion. This is a disputable matter. It's something that's maybe very important, but it's something that we can disagree on and still remain in fellowship together as brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the ways that we have tried to practice this acceptance over differing issues as a church is through a statement that our denomination uses that goes like this. It says, in essentials, we are to have unity. In non-essentials, we grant each other liberty or freedom. But in all things, we will practice charity. We will show one another love. So what are some examples of beliefs in our church that are essential? Beliefs that we think we must share in unity. Well, some of them include these, uh, that we believe in one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is an essential for us. We believe in the authority of the Scriptures, that they are the ruling authority on all matters pertaining to our faith. Uh, We also think that essential is our belief in the uniqueness of Jesus, that it is only through faith in Jesus that we are saved. These are just some of the essentials for us as a church. So what are examples of some non-essentials? Well, you might be able to think of some. Let me give you a few here. Uh, One example of a non-essential is whether or not the preacher wears blue jeans or a robe. Is that an essential? Well, it, it is essential that the preacher wears clothes. No one wants to see the preacher in his underwear. That's just awkward. But the kind of clothes that a preacher wears is a non-essential for us. How about about this one? How about styles of worship? Is styles of worship an essential or non-essential thing? Whether people raise their hands or or simply sing with their hands in their pockets. Well, if you know me, I'm I'm kind of a football for Jesus guy in worship, right? My hands are up. Maybe you're more of a teacher I need help kind of worshiper. Or or maybe you just got your hands up. That's that's a non-essential for us as a church. Now, just because something is a non-essential does not mean that it's not important. Let me give you a couple examples of some very important but still non-essential things for us as a church. One of these is what kind of school choice you make for your kids, right? Whether you public school, private school, homeschool, or online school, or the billions of other school options in our COVID world right now, 
There is room for everyone here on this issue. This is a non-essential, but it is hugely important. And I hope that you pray and you reflect and you make that decision with conviction. It matters, but we should not divide our fellowship over it. This is the same, by the way, of our political convictions. Whether you are a libertarian, a Democrat, a Republican, or a Mandalorian, there must be room for all of us in the body of Christ. Now look, I know that those people on the other side of you, whatever the issue is, are weaker in their faith. They are. They are weaker. You are smarter. You are the mature faith. They are the weaker ones. And, and you are right. But look, Paul says, you and I have to accept those weaker people. We have to welcome into friendship those who are weaker in the faith. Why? Because God has accepted them. We are not to exclude these people from our contacts with one another. We must not form cliques within the church that shut out people from fellowship simply because they have different viewpoints. We must not think of our group as being set free while this other group over there is very narrow and we will have nothing to do with them. This is wrong. And Paul clearly says it. In fact, he implies this. He says that, that if the so-called strong in faith exclude the so-called weak, by looking down on them, treating them as though they're second-class Christians, the, the strong ones have simply proved that they are just as weak in the faith as the ones they have denied. Strength in faith means more than simply understanding truth. It means holding together grace and truth, living out the command of Jesus to love one another, especially those that we consider weaker in their viewpoint of faith. Now, I remember in this Bible study, Jeff and I were kind of at odds, right? I was fine staying in the donut shop, and Jeff, he really felt uncomfortable about it. And, and we met, and we talked, and we actually looked at this very passage of Scripture, this very one we're reading today. And we prayed, and we, and we settled on the fact that, you know what, because of Jeff's conscience, his lack of comfort, we would not meet in the donut shop. And I was faced with a dilemma. I was faced with a kind of choice. I could either cling to my sense of being right or I could choose instead to value unity. Thankfully, I've made the latter choice and Jeff and I enjoyed friendship for another three years when he passed uh, away during his college years. I'm so grateful that Jeff and I remained reconciled, unified, and did not divide our fellowship over that issue. Which brings us to Paul's second command in this passage. He says this, we are to not judge others, but remember that each person is ultimately accountable to God. Look at what he says here in Romans 14, the next three verses, four through six. Who are you to judge someone else's servant, he says. To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike, just kind of like the food issues, right? Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God as well. See, this passage is very plain, is it not? The reason we are to not judge each other is that we are not responsible for each other's choices. 
Such responsibility is not defined in the Scriptures. This is an open area that each of us has to decide before the Lord. And we are each, therefore, accountable for our own choices. It's not our job to change each other on these issues. It's our job to accept one another. The thing Paul brings out here is that the man under consideration is in the process of being changed. That's what it means that he is able to stand. He is standing upright. If he's not kind of able to do that, the, the idea here is that God is the one who will straighten him out. You get the language there? And we have to trust God to do that in the other person. But there is a flip side to this as well. What if you and I are in need of some straightening out as well. What if our viewpoints, though again, clearly you and I are the stronger ones in faith. Clearly the world does not know how intelligent and insightful and enlightened we are. And we are. But what if even just 2% of the way we see things needs to be shaped and molded by Jesus? Are we humble enough to receive that? Or are we so convinced that we've already got everything figured out that there is no room for growth in our lives? I don't know about you, but I, I, I was just dreaming as I was reading this passage. Can you imagine? Just picture this. Can you imagine two Christians with opposing viewpoints on peanut butter and chocolate, on how to school their kids, on politics, whatever it is. Two Christians with opposing viewpoints on an important issue, but they are able to sit down and really listen to each other to open the scriptures together, to pray, and maybe even to learn something from one another. Instead of judging or labeling or condemning each other, that kind of posture, that kind of humility, can you imagine that? If the world could see that in the lives of Christians, they, I promise you, they would stop and take notice. Which brings us to our third and final command that Paul lays out in this passage. For those with whom we disagree, Paul says, we must remember this. We must remember that in Christ, we are brothers and sisters. Look at verses 13 through 15. Here's how he describes that. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Man, I feel like we should just stop right there, pray, and go home. <laughs> let us stop. Don't do it anymore. Instead, instead, Make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully, for, fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. See, Paul has a viewpoint. Remember, he has a perspective. But, but if anyone regards something as unclean, for that person it is unclean. Therefore, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Now, there is so much in this little passage. We could take another hour just unpacking this. But let me just say this. Paul says that we are to remember that that other person on the opposite end of the table, on the opposite end of the text messaging, on the opposite end of the phone conversation, on the opposite end of the social media post, is a brother and sister in Christ. And it does not matter if you disagree. In fact, it especially matters when you disagree that they are part of the same body. You are to accept them. You are to love them the way Christ has loved you. 
That is the Christian ethic. That is the call to every Christian who would follow in the way of Jesus. And my friends, there is no dumbing that down. We will either choose that or we will not. We will either choose unity or we will choose judgment and divisiveness and bitterness and hatred. And the choice is yours. And the choice is mine. Now, why? Why does all of this matter? Why does it matter? Well, it matters because the world is watching. The world is watching. Parents, grandparents, your children are watching. And they are making decisions about whether or not this Jesus is worth following. In a world of hatred and bitterness and condemnation and division, do Christians offer any hope? Do Christians offer any other way? Does following Jesus make us any more loving, any more kind, any more compassionate, any more patient than the world around us? Or are, in fact, we no different? Have we done nothing more than conform to the pattern of this world? Well, Jesus said it. He said it as clear as he possibly could. And the challenge and the invitation rings out for you and me today. Jesus said the world is going to know if we are his followers, not by how loud we shout, not by how deep we dig our heels in, but simply by the way we love one another. Well, it was on the night that Jesus gathered around that table for his last supper with his ragtag band of disciples. And he had his prayer request, you remember? Oh, Father, would you make them one? Oh, Father, would you unite them? Why? So that the world might know that you have sent me. And so around the table... That night, Jesus took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and offered it to his disciples, saying, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat of it, do so in remembrance of me. In a similar way, he took a cup of wine, and after giving thanks, he said, this, this is the blood of my new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. Today, as we come to the communion table, I want us to remember three things. Three things. First, communion is the reminder that we have been accepted by God, whether we are strong or whether we are weak in our faith. We have been accepted not because of what we have done, not because of our own views or our own religious performance, but we have been accepted simply by what he has accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But the second thing we remember today as we come to communion is that this is a symbol of our unity. That everyone in God's world is welcome to this table and that at Jesus' table, you and I and everyone are brothers and sisters in Christ. And finally, communion is an invitation to search our own hearts again, to confess our sin, 
to confess the ways that we have failed to love others the way Jesus has loved us and to receive again the grace and mercy and compassion and forgiveness that only Jesus can offer. So my friends, today, will you come again and declare Jesus as Lord and be united as brothers and sisters in his body? Can we pray? Father, we are so grateful for the gift of your son, Jesus, for his sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection from the tomb that has made the forgiveness of our sins and the uniting of us as part of your body possible. Today, we confess the ways that we have failed to love others. Would you teach us what it really means to follow this law of Christ? And God, would you use the power of your Holy Spirit to unite us again as your church, that the world might know that you are the one who loves. We make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.